0: What type of attitude should characterize us as Christ followers toward one another? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello everybody and welcome once again. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, November the 1st of 2010, and I'm your host, as always, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I want to start out by just apologizing uh, for not putting out any lessons last week. Last Monday and Tuesday, I had just the worst migraine ever, and I found out what it was from. I think I've told you guys before. I'm really sensitive to uh, to barometric pressure changes, and last, uh, it, it was Monday or Tuesday, I believe it was Monday, um, we had the lowest Uh, barometric pressure, the second lowest, I'm sorry, the second lowest barometric pressure ever recorded in the United States here in the Midwest. And let me tell you, I could feel it uh, because I had a migraine that I just couldn't get control of. And usually, you know, I take a couple Advil or or something like that, and I'm okay in a couple hours. Uh, Not for this one, man. It, It took me two days to get over this one. It was pretty bad. So anyway, I apologize for um, for not getting a lesson out on Romans last week. So uh, anyway, I'm feeling better now, and uh, this coming weekend, this Saturday, I am running in, um, in a half marathon down in Fort Smith. Fellowship of Christian Athletes are having uh, a, marathon or a half marathon down there, and so I'm going to be participating in that. And it should be nice and cool down there. I think they've got a forecast for a high of like 60 degrees, so should be prime running conditions anyway real quick before we get started here I do have three really quick announcements for you guys first of all I want to remind you guys that we are a listener supported ministry and you can go on to Biblestudypodcasts.org and support us through bank drafts through PayPal uh, either weekly or monthly or you can make one-time gifts and this month, for the month of November, everybody who makes a one-time gift of $30 or more, or signs up to uh, to get automatic uh, payments through PayPal uh, to support our ministry, is going to get a copy of William Lane Craig's new book called On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. And the back says, do you worry that someone will ask you a question about your faith that you can't answer? I think we all kind of worry about that sometimes, right? Even me, I've got my master's degree in apologetics <laughs> And sometimes I worry about that. What if I get a question that I can't answer? Anyway, it says uh, Have you tried to learn how to defend your faith but gotten lost in confusing language and theology? You know, I can say I've been there. Uh, Do you struggle with times of spiritual doubt yourself? This concise training manual by renowned scholar William Lane Craig is filled with illustrations, sidebars, and memorizable steps to help you stand your ground and defend your faith with reason and precision. In his engaging style, Dr. Craig offers four arguments for God's existence, defends the historicity of Jesus' personal claims and resurrection, addresses the problem of suffering, and shows why religious relativism doesn't work. Along the way, he shares his own story of following God's call. And let me just tell you guys, uh, William Lane Craig is possibly the greatest apologist uh, of our era. Um, You know, I love Dr. Geisler and everything, but William Lane Craig, uh, man, this guy just takes apologetics to another level. Uh, This is a highly recommended book. And yeah, everybody who makes a one-time donation of $30 or more this month, November 2010, or if you sign up for uh, supporting us either weekly or monthly through PayPal, uh, you're going to get a copy of this. And if, uh, if you're already supporting our ministry weekly or monthly, you're going to get a copy of this as well. So anyway, just something I want to get in your hands or, uh, you know, just something for you guys to be looking forward to pick up. Uh, our next announcement is regarding Caitlin. Uh, Caitlin is doing better they uh they apparently eliminated the um, the tumor that was in the back of her throat she 's out of children's i c u um, but she does have uh, still some some ongoing discomfort uh, but apparently she's getting ready to go into stage two of chemotherapy i'm not sure what all that entails um, but anyway, yeah, please keep praying for caitlin and again um You know, this is a girl who uh, is diagnosed with cancer and has like a 5% chance of of making it through all of this. Uh, It's not good. Um, finally, last announcement, just real quick, uh, for those of you who have been praying with me and and for me, uh, as I've been, um, applying for this church in Michigan, I told you guys a few weeks ago that I was one of the final candidates for this church in Michigan. Well, I got the letter from them. It's not going to work out. They, uh, they bypassed my resume or went on to the next person. So, uh, my prayer is just that they will find, uh, the man that God's called for that job, uh, and that the Lord would continue to work on me as he prepares me for where he's going to be sending me. So anyway, I just wanted to make you guys aware of that. Thank you for your prayers. Please keep praying for me. I appreciate your prayers. Anyway, we've got a lesson to do here. Uh, Let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. God, we just thank you so much for the time that you've given us here today to, uh, to study your word and to learn more about how we should be treating each other, Lord. I pray that this will be fruitful, that it will change our lives and our attitudes for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought it might be good to preface this lesson with just a, a little reminder. And it's nothing profound, uh, it, it's nothing complicated, and it's nothing that you haven't heard me say before, unless you haven't listened through most of the lessons. But let me start by reminding us that while it's true that God reached out to humanity to save us from the consequences of our sin by His grace, That's not where it ends. He also reached out to humanity so that we could live by his grace. We're saved by his grace so that we can live by his grace. You know, we we so often look at our faith in terms of the past, knowing that we're forgiven for the sins that we've committed against God. And we look at it in terms of the future, knowing that we're going to spend eternity in God's presence in heaven. But what about the present? What about now? You know, we often completely overlook the fact that we already have every heavenly blessing in our possession. Did you know that? We have every heavenly blessing in our possession. Do you sometimes forget that? I know I do. But yes, we do have every heavenly blessing in our possession right here and right now. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. This is our strength in the here and now, and yet we so often fail to take hold of those blessings, and we therefore fail to live in light of that reality. Imagine somebody breaking into your house to steal everything that you have, and you're just sitting right there on the couch in the living room watching it all happen. Now, imagine that you're sitting there watching it happen, but you do have a weapon. You're armed. And you realize that the thief is unarmed. And the thief might turn to you and say, Dude, are you going to use that thing or what? <laughs> you know, what would your response be? Oh, I'm hoping to use it someday in the future. Well, it's funny. I realize, you know, I'm I'm being facetious here, but sadly, that's exactly how most Christ followers treat the heavenly blessings that we already have. Oh yeah, you know, I have God's grace and every heavenly blessing and everything and I'll live by that someday like when I get to heaven. Friends, listen. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven to take hold of and to use the blessings of heaven. They're ours to use now in the present. We also know that we've each been gifted by the Holy Spirit with gifts that we're supposed to be using and growing by. When? Now, in the present. That's something that Paul has briefly covered here in our study of the 12th chapter of Romans. He told us that when we have a proper understanding of our identity in Christ, we understand that we weren't created to be just Lone Ranger Christ followers. Rather, he likened all Christ followers as a whole to a body. The implication is that just like different parts of the human body have different functions, so too we, as the body of Christ, have different functions. In fact, you probably know people who you think are very likely the rear end of the body, right? (laughs) I think it's possible that they think the same thing about you. Seriously though, I don't mean to be crude, but let's be honest about something here. Let's just put all the cards out on the table and be honest. We're better at loving the world than we are at loving each other. We saw in verse 9 that Paul told us to love without hypocrisy, which means hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Okay, we're good with that. We understand that. We like that. We all agree that hypocrisy is bad, right? And we all agree that love is good. We want people to see us as loving people, right? I mean, none of us really want the world to look at us and see someone who hates everything. So Paul doesn't end there. Yes, on a large scale, we're supposed to have agape love for the things that God has, agape love toward, including people specifically, but Paul wants to remind us to take this even further. So he writes here in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. Now, if we're being completely honest about this, we have to immediately realize that this is a challenge for us. That's why you think that so and so is the rear end of the body of Christ. And again, I'm not trying to be crude here. I'm being completely honest. That's why churches have cliques. That's why churches have divisions. That's why churches split all the time there are church splits going on all the time. Why? Because so-and-so believes that so-and-so is the rear end of the body of Christ. Now, I listen to a lot of sermons on the internet, and I was recently listening to a sermon of a pastor who was talking about something that he saw happen in a church in his community. Fortunately, it wasn't in his church. But the story is this. He says, the The church um, that this happened in was a medium-sized church, around 100 people or so, and they'd often have potlucks after their Sunday services. So one week after the potluck, people were cleaning up, and they'd bring the leftover food into the church kitchen, right? Okay, so some of the food would be thrown away, but some of it would be sent home with the person who brought it. Well, one of the women who was helping to clean up noticed that there was a stick of butter that had been left behind, and so she thought that it would be, you know, pretty harmless if she just brought it home, even though she knew that it wasn't hers. This was a stick of butter, Now, the woman to whom the stick of butter belonged heard that this other woman had taken it home, and she was upset. I mean, she was really upset, apparently. So she started talking and gossiping about this woman who had taken her stick of butter home. And before you knew it, word got back to the woman who had taken the stick of butter, and so she started talking and gossiping about the woman to whom the stick of butter had belonged. And within one year, the church split. The church split over a stick of butter of butter. Reliant K wrote a song called Down in Flames, and they sang, the enemy is much ignored as we fight this Christian civil war. We're cannibals, we watch our brothers fall. We eat our own, the bones and all. And truer words might never have been spoken. The enemy knows that one of his best schemes, one of his best tactics, is to set us Against each other. He doesn't need to convince us to become Satanists or to to follow him. He doesn't need to infiltrate our messages with the false teaching here and there. One of his favorite schemes is just to set us up against one another and let us go at it. That's why, that is why it's so important that we not think too highly of ourselves, as Paul reminded us back in verse 3. When we think too highly of ourselves, how likely are we to sweat the small and insignificant stuff? Friends, if we think too highly of ourselves, we sweat all the small and insignificant stuff, stuff like a stick of butter. One of the ugliest moments in the history of any nation is when that nation engages in a civil war, in the American Civil War. It was common to have one brother siding with the North and another brother siding with the South. And when they met on the battlefield, they treated one another without regard as enemies. And it's tragic when any two men who were given life by the same woman would end up ready to kill each other. We all recognize how wrong it is for one brother to do harm to another brother, which is why we get so emotionally stirred up by stories like Cain and Abel, or Jacob and Esau, or the story of Joseph and his brothers. And yet, and yet, how much more tragic is it that we, as followers of Christ, who have been born again of the same Holy Spirit, sealed by the same Holy Spirit, and empowered by the same Holy Spirit... We rise against one another in acts of animosity and hatred. That's tragic. It's a picture of the hand stabbing the foot or the foot kicking the hand. And I'm convinced that the enemy loves to cause things like that because the world steps back and watches from afar thinking, why in the world would I ever want to be a part of that? Paul knows how it is. He knows that we have this tendency to divide ourselves over insignificant issues. When he wrote to the church in Corinth, he started off his letter in verses 10 and 11, chapter 1, writing, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So word has gotten back to Paul that the Christ followers in Corinth were fighting, bickering, they were quarreling, and the result is that they were dividing into these different factions. Now what were these factions? Paul tells us as he continues writing. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. That's from verse 12. Whoa, there. Okay, I mean, Paul realized here that some of the followers of Jesus in that community were putting him, Paul, on a pedestal with Jesus. And they were doing the same thing with Apollos and Peter. Some professed to be following Paul. Some professed to be following Apollos. Some professed to be following Peter. And some professed to be following Jesus. That's not good. There were some huge theological issues going on there, obviously, but Paul sets the record straight, writing, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's from verse 13. See, there were divisions, and Paul knew that the cause of divisions was one person saying, My way is better than your way. If Paul was writing to us in our day and age, he might say something similar. I imagine he might say something like, Each one of you is saying, I follow. John Calvin. And I follow Jacob Arminius. And I follow Pope Benedict. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure you get what I'm saying here. We divide ourselves. But was John Calvin crucified for us? Was Jacob Arminius? Was the Pope? No. But look at what happens when we divide the body of Christ. People who have been born again of the same Holy Spirit first decide that they don't like each other. Then they decide that they hate each other. And then they hurt each other. Look at what happened between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics in places like Ireland. I don't think it ever came to that in Corinth, but it doesn't sound like they were too far away from it. Knowing that followers of Jesus tend to divide into groups and factions then, Paul wrote to the Romans, telling them, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, that's the NASB translation, and I think that this is a actually kind of a poor translation from the Greek. The New King James says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Uh, let me tell you, that's a, a horrible translation, if you ask me. Kindly affectionate sounds like, I don't know, a couple steps down from the agape love that Paul mentioned in the previous verse. The ESV translation reads, love one another with brotherly affection. Okay, probably a little closer to what Paul was trying to get at here in Romans chapter 12 verse 10. The question that we should always ask ourselves when we're reading the New Testament and we see the word love is, what kind of love is Paul talking about here? Now remember, there are several Greek words for different types of love. So anytime we see the word love, we should look deeper. And the word that gets translated as love here is phylostorgos. And it's a word that we don't find anywhere else in scripture, but it's really just two other words put together to form one word. The first half of the word is philo, which is the type of love that one would have for a companion. The second half of the word is storgos, which means cherishing one's kindred, especially parents or children. So what we see here then is that Paul isn't talking about a love that's fickle. He's talking about the type of love that a husband and wife are supposed to share for each other. It's the same type of love that a parent should have for the children, and vice versa. And I think that's why the NASB translates this word as devoted, because that's exactly what should characterize the love that a family, that a wife and husband, should have for one another. Kind of like the old saying, blood is thicker than water. The idea that Paul's trying to communicate with this word is that there should be nothing, 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 that can come between the lover, that is you, and the object of their love, that is the rest of the body of Christ. Now, when I look at this word and realize that it's the only place that we find this word in scripture, I wonder, why did Paul use such a strong word here? This is a really strong word. Why does he use this word here? And I think that the answer might be found in John chapter 15. Starting in verse 1, we see Jesus talking to his disciples about the importance of abiding in him. He pointed out that if we don't abide in him, we don't bear fruit. And that's pretty similar to what Paul has just finished telling us, right? Talking about our gifts. And when we function in the way that we're gifted, what do we do? We bear fruit. If we're not bearing fruit, what does that mean? It means that we're trying to do something that doesn't involve us abiding in him. And here's a comforting thought. He tells us that if we are bearing fruit, we can expect to be pruned so that we can bear even more fruit. And friends, being pruned is... It's confusing, it's painful, and yet it's part of us discovering and fulfilling the purposes that God designed us for. But Jesus doesn't stop there, because we might ask, well, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? So he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then he drops a bomb on them. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. That's John chapter 15, verse 12. And this is huge. For him to say this, this is huge because he's actually repeating the very exact words that he spoke to them back in chapter 13, verse 34. And when we see repetition, it's an indication that what's being said is extremely important. So the fact that Jesus has repeated this, love each other. That's huge. Now, before we go any further, let's just take a moment to look at the context here. Uh, When is all of this being said? It's being said right before Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified. And these are kind of like Jesus's last wishes, his last words before he dies. Now, let me ask you something. If you know that you're about to die, if you know it, you're you're laying on your deathbed and the doctors tell you, you've got half an hour left. Are you going to spend even one second talking about something that isn't of utmost importance to you? I don't think so. You know, as I'm laying on my deathbed, I don't think I'll be talking about why I thought, um, you know, Iron Man 2 was a horrible movie. It's not important to me. I'm not going to be talking about it. I don't care if the people that I love remember that I didn't enjoy Iron Man 2. So the fact that Jesus is telling his disciples to love one another right before he dies, and the fact that he repeats this command to make sure that they don't miss it, is a strong indication that there are very, very few things that are more important to him than the love that we as Christ followers feel Now, looking back at what Jesus said in chapter 13, we see that he said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's from verse 35. So what we see here in chapter 15, then, is that when we don't love one another, it's an issue of not abiding in Jesus. Now, knowing that he's about to be killed, Jesus goes off to pray and he says to the Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. That's from chapter 17, verse 11. So is unity and love between Christ followers of utmost importance to Jesus? You better believe it. Is it optional? Absolutely not. Now, Just to clarify real quick here, I'm not saying that we should do away with denominations. Denominations do serve a purpose. They hold differing views on non-essential issues like Calvinism versus Arminianism or baptism by immersion versus baptism by sprinkling, you know, things like that. Things that aren't uh, necessary for salvation. But what we have to see is that those types of things shouldn't be stumbling blocks to our unity With one another. And if they are, if they cause us to feel animosity or, God forbid, hatred toward one another, if they cause us to sever relations with one another, then we're not abiding in Christ's love. We're in sin. So unity among Christ followers is something that we have to hold above the non-essential aspects of our faith. But let's remember that Paul also wrote to the church in Galatia telling them that if somebody teaches them a different gospel, if somebody comes proclaiming a different gospel message, that person is to be accursed. In other words, have nothing to do with someone who denies one of the essential elements of of the gospel. So what we can gather from this is that unity is less important than holding true to the essential doctrines of our faith, but unity is more important than the non-essential doctrines of our faith. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. So what does this type of devotion look like? Well, as a guy who's been married for almost 15 years now, my, uh, my 15-year anniversary is uh, December 30th, I can tell you that a husband and wife won't always agree on everything. And believers won't always agree on everything. But yeah, a husband and wife will not always agree on absolutely everything. But my devotion to my wife and her devotion to me causes us to look for ways to reconcile, to compromise. And sometimes that means not having things go exactly my way. A lot of the time, that's exactly what it means. And you know what? I actually like it. When that happens, because I love her so much, I'm so devoted to her, that her happiness and her contentment is more important to me than my own happiness. And the same is true for her. She's more content seeing me happy than with getting things her own way all the time. That's the only way that a marriage can work. And we work together like that because we're devoted to each other. Does that make sense? Does that mean it's always easy? No, absolutely not. There have been a couple seasons that my wife and I have gone through where you know most people might have called it quits, but we decided to fight for our marriage. Why? Because we're devoted to one another, and that made our marriage worth sacrificing for in order to save it. And that's the type of devotion that Paul is instructing us as followers of Jesus, the body of Christ, to have for one another. Fight for our unity. The bottom line, friends, the bottom line is this. When we are lovingly devoted and united with one another, we not only prove that we're followers of Jesus, but we're also obedient to Jesus. And when we're obedient to Jesus, we bear fruit. When we bear fruit, the body of Christ grows because the world sees us as more than just a community or a social club. They'll see us as a family that they want to be a part of Blood is thicker than water and the blood of Christ has made us all one in him. It's always bigger and always stronger than our non-essential differences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for making a way to save us, for giving us your grace to save us once and for all and for giving us grace to live on daily, Lord. Help us to do that. And thank you, Lord, for making us one with your Son, We pray, Lord, that you will also make us one with each other, not only in theory, but in practice, Lord. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to function with one another so that we can bring more glory to you, so that we can be that light on a hill that you've commanded us to be. We love you, Lord. Our lives belong to you. They're not our own. Help us to live in light of that reality. Guide us with your Holy Spirit. Teach us to become more like you.